Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Impact Boom would like to thank the Queensland Public Service Commission, especially the Community Insights team, and particularly Susie Woodrow-Reed and Ruth Toomey, who helped make the Activating System Change event a reality. And we'd also like to thank the incredible Impact Boom team, who was there to support on the day and help things flow smoothly. Did you know that in 2014, the Indigenous unemployment rate was 21%, four times higher than the non-Indigenous unemployment rate of 5%? And did you know that Indigenous children born between 2010 and 2012 can expect to live more than 10 years less than a non-Indigenous child? Did you know that the number of Australians aged 65 and over is projected to more than double by 2054 compared with today, whilst the ratio of working age people to retirees is going to halve in that time. And did you know that 63% of Australians are either overweight or obese, and that almost one in five Australians consume more than the recommended maximum of two alcoholic drinks per day? Now, we certainly have no shortage of complex community issues in Australia and around the world, which affect every single one of us, whether or not we are considered in need. So how might we activate system change with cross-sectional approaches that effectively tackle complex community issues? Now, the purpose of the Activating System Change event was not to provide the answers, but to open a conversation with ideas, thoughts and perspectives to help us advance how we, as a cross-sectoral community, can most effectively create that positive social impact. We had a fantastic panel on the day, so let me introduce them. Belinda Drew is the CEO of the Community Services Industry Alliance. Belinda Drew's passion for social investment and innovation helped launch the CSIA's developmental and collaborative agenda. Over the last decade, Belinda successfully led Forrester's community finance through a period of considerable change in cultural evolution, focusing on Australia's social investment market in her role as CEO. Over the term of her employment, Belinda developed a strong skill set in organisational management and strategic leadership, harnessing and further honing her knowledge across social enterprise, social entrepreneurship, microfinance, community finance and social investment. Professor Brad Jackson is the incoming Professor of Social Innovation at Griffith University. Professor Jackson is also the incoming Director of the Policy Innovation Hub at Griffith University. He is currently Professor of Public and Community Leadership at Victoria University of Wellington, where he was the former Head of School of Government and Head of School of Management. At the University of Auckland Business School, he was Co-Director of the New Zealand Leadership Institute. Brad has published six books and is the former co-editor of the journal Leadership and the former vice-chair of the Arkina Foundation and the International Leadership Association. Helen Sharpley is the executive director of Community Insights at the Queensland Public Service Commission. 
Helen has over 15 years experience establishing innovation capability in executive roles in the government, semi-government and private sectors. The Community Insights team provides advisory services and partners with Queensland government agencies to support them to connect with communities, understand their needs and design strategies, services and policies to meet those needs using behavioural insights, design thinking and participatory approaches such as co-design. Helen is a passionate advocate for the application of behavioural insights and social science methods to services and policy design. She champions an approach in which behavioural insights informs and integrates with design thinking and collaborative methodologies to consider and create person-centred approaches to complex and multifaceted problems. And Steve Williams is the Queensland Social Innovation Manager at Marist 180 where he's developed innovation and entrepreneurship programs aimed at enabling Queenslanders experiencing disadvantage to take part in the startup space. In his previous role as the Social Enterprise Director at Sandbag Inc., Steve led Seed PPM to be awarded the Small Australian Social Enterprise of the Year in 2014. Steve is also the co-founder and inaugural chair of the Queensland Social Enterprise Council. So let's hear the first question and then head to the live event. In a recent interview with Dr. Ingrid Burkett of the Australian Centre for Social Innovation, Ingrid told me that what is happening in some of Australia's most disadvantaged communities is that there's been the same sort of outcomes for about 30 years. Nothing much has shifted despite the fact that we've invested millions of dollars in those communities, she said. So I asked Belinda with the first question of the day whether she'd agree with this, and if so, where are we going so terribly wrong? Just to start, in a controversial space, hey, Tom? <laughs> yeah, 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 I will. I'll just take a deep breath first, hey? Um, uh, I have enormous respect for the work um, Ingrid does, and I think, yeah, she's right. Um, I think it's generally true that we are all across the sort of social health community services space feeling a sense of unease about that, the fact that very, very large amounts of money are invested in social and human services, but intuitively and sometimes uh, our evidence shows us that the change we anticipate doesn't actually um, happen. So, you know, I think we're there on, you know, on that idea. I, I don't think that we need much convincing anymore that that's actually true. And I think, you know, in Ingrid's work, one of the things she's observed is this sort of meteor shower, really, of investment. So uh, it lands on the ground in a fairly uncoordinated way, perhaps with uh, not much um, foresight to the actual outcomes and an overemphasis on outputs. Uh, so again, I don't, I don't think that that analysis is either is, is terribly controversial. I, I think what is actually difficult is moving from that idea to action. Um, so, you know, to give an example, we've spent at least a decade, maybe 15 years, talking about a shift to an outcomes focus because at some level we think that's going to help us to make this change, to get better outcomes. How many times have people in the room heard that we need better outcomes? Uh, but we're not there, frankly. We have made no real progress on that front uh, at a comprehensive level. And, you know, as you make those sort of gross generalisations, of course, many of you in the room will say, yes, we have. And that's true, but it's been a piecemeal and incremental, not comprehensive approach. And I'm really pleased to hear you talk in terms of systems change because it's at that level we need to start thinking about outcomes. And then I think, you know, finally, the most 
controversial bit of this is actually how do we untangle the current contracting and relationship arrangements we have across the system in relation to the current investment in a way that doesn't land us in um, the political, um, but in a way that actually helps us to build consensus about what's most important and then on the basis of that shift our investment. So, you know, in summary, we need investment realignment, but we need people to get beyond their own individual and organisational uh, interests and start to think about that investment at that systems level. A fantastic, comprehensive response, Belinda. I expected nothing less. Would anyone else like to add something to that? Uh, uh, just to say thank you so very much. Uh, I have th three weeks away from starting at, at Griffith. And it's interesting because I often go with what's your initial gut reaction when you hear a quote uh, like that? And as you've alluded to, Belinda, and the audience certainly hold it, uh, you know, what, what, what have we been doing the last 30 years? And, it, you know, it turns out not much has shifted uh, at one level, certainly in terms of outcomes, not a lot overall, but we all know that there have been some quite remarkable pockets of achievement and movement. And I don't think we should be ignoring those. I also think, just if you think about uh, the kind of gathering, this, this gathering 30 years ago, maybe even five years ago, would we have had this kind of gathering in this kind of place with this kind of talent all focused on this particular issue? So I think in terms of how we see the problem and how we approach, so if you like, uh, everything has changed as far as um, you know the, the, the framing and the language of the issue. The big, big shift is to action, as Blinda was, was saying. And also in terms of the extent to which, okay, as professionals, as those are here to try to help and support and lead, uh, we've made that shift, but the extent to which the broader citizenry have made that shift, and uh, I mean, intuitively may have made that shift, that's the major challenge. So on, on one level, uh, not much. On another, an awful lot, but it's poised and it needs to, it needs concerted effort, not just among those who are in the public and community services, but amongst the broader citizenry. And I think that's going to be the biggest shift of all. Hi. Um, yeah, I probably will be a bit controversial on that first question, because I do think that it's a macroeconomic question. And I think that it got, so there are amazing things happening on the ground. There's Logan together. There's, you know, lots of different examples that we can all talk to over the last 30 years. But all the time we've been driven by a neoliberal economic agenda of greed. You know, it, we're literally pushing it uphill, IT. And, um, and I think that that's the real issue. So we can all be doing stuff on the ground and we are making changes and there are changes happening. And I think that millennials are pushing those changes especially. So we may see better changes over the next 10 years, but I think it's the economic problem that, that keeps us where we are at the moment. Thank you very much for those responses. Now, in 1973, a lot of you would be familiar with the work of Horst Riddle and Weber, who wrote a now famous paper which defined a wicked problem as a social or cultural problem that's difficult or impossible to solve for as many as four key reasons. The incomplete or contradictory knowledge, the number of people and opinions involved, the large economic burden, and the interconnected nature of these problems with other problems. So according to Riddle and Weber, social problems are never solved, but at best resolved over 
and over again. So the question for the panel is, what approaches are you all using which you believe are the most effective in tackling such complex, wicked problems? So thank you very much. Um, the introduction that Tom gave um, talked about some of the approaches that we're using and probably most people would have heard of co-design, design thinking. Um, the approach is really at the heart is about human-centred design. So it is about gathering a really deep understanding of the community and the people that are experiencing the problems that we talk about, you know, in these forums. We have been, as an, I guess, internal consulting area to the rest of government, we have been quite successful uh, in encouraging government to spend more time in the understanding space. So uh, we all have... Um, I guess our brains are wired for simplicity. They're uh, wired to come up with something that we can easily point to to say, here we go, here, we've got a solution. The hard part and I guess the approach that we have been encouraging and, and we have a lot of take-up um, for is to actually sit in that really uncomfortable space and hear different views and really reach out to community and maybe hear some of the stories that we don't like. Government and this is from my perspective, this is not government perspective, but government traditionally doesn't really like conflict um, and encouraging people to sit in that space of conflict, of ambiguity, of really getting their heads around complexity when we're often driven by an election cycle is a difficult thing, but I'm happy to say that's happening more and more. Um, well, I talk as a practitioner really in social enterprise and I think that social, obviously I'm going to say this for people who know me, but I think that social enterprise does have the potential to solve wicked problems. So I'll just give you a very brief example. Um, I've just been seconded in to manage a, uh, a painting social enterprise that Morris 180 has, and it was created specifically to create employment for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as apprentices in the painting and construction industry. It's been running for three years. It's got 75% what we call retention rates of employment. So after those young people have come in with us and they spent six months uh, learning work skills um, and learning some painting skills, we spin them out to commercial painting firms uh, and it's been found that they stay with those commercial painting firms for at least a year. That's 75% of those young people. Job actives have about a 35 to 45% retention rate. So we can see there that's just one very small example where social enterprise is creating a solution to wicked problems. I guess my initial interest in social enterprise was as a means uh, to, to an end, in particular that it forces uh, the issues to actually involve cross-sectoral uh, a focus, not just public NGO community, but also an indigenous focus. So I see that as being a very powerful means. But I think the critical thing from my perspective, and of course I would say that, is that it's a shift from our ideas, conceptions about what effective leadership is. Uh, and it's interesting, my colleague Keith Grin uh, has written about uh, that, that particular paper, The Wicked Problems, and the fact that our whole leadership mindset has to change from being very much focused about uh, you know the individual leader in a particular organisation, as Belinda was saying, defending that particular organisation to actually changing in a fundamental way what we believe effective leadership in a much more collective means and so uh, I've been serving on the board of uh, Toi Fakari, which is the New Zealand uh, drama uh, school and one of the reasons I got uh, excited about the work they do there is that amongst 
their budding actors, uh, performer, producers, etc. They foster a very strong sense of collective leadership based on kuiitanga, which is a Māori tikanga, that is now being used to develop public servants in, in New Zealand. So it's actually drawing on indigenous ways of knowing about leadership, but fostering in a very powerful way uh, the collective leadership that transcends sectors, that transcends organisation to get the system change that we need to do. So I know it's a, a hackneyed phrase moving from heroic to post heroic, but I think thinking quite differently about what we think effective leadership in a much more collective way, that's going to be really critical. Uh, and the great thing is we've got some great models out there. It's not a, a necessarily a new solution it's just we've got to rediscover that uh, solution so that that's essentially my, my, my passion I am um, I love that example Brad because it's so strengths based and I think you know in reading the pre-material Tom one of the things I, I just think that the analysis that this sort of idea of wicked problems brings is deficit focused and and you know as even you read the material I was thinking you know what, what a a place um, of sort of futility uh, we land in if we actually believe that all we ever do as human beings is resolve the same problems over and over again. I mean, that personally makes me want to weep. I know on some level it's probably true, but um, but it seems futile. And I think that that idea of futility in a way is kind of built up into our system. And, you know, you would know from your own context, Brad, um, your former finance minister, you know, talked in those terms, invest in futility. And just to finish though, um, you know, I think, you know, we should start casting our mind to this uh, sort of human services space around us that's going to reshape itself despite us. So a lot of that wicked problem analysis comes from um, the sort of institutions we have formed around the delivery of human services and human services professionals and forgets that uh, people uh, have their own aspirations and views of the world and have their own ideas about how they want to live and change their own lives. And reforms in Australia, like the National Disability Insurance Scheme, are a little kind of spot of bright light towards that goal of putting people in charge of what happens in their own lives. And so, you know, my perspective in terms of um, community organisations, if they don't get with that program, if they don't start to understand that actually uh, the form of human service delivery in the future might not be institutional in its same form, might not value um, human services professionals in the same way, um, then we will be left behind. Yeah, I, I mean, so thinking again on a kind of micro level and on a personal level, I was listening to Impact Burning yesterday uh, and I was listening to Ruth and Susie uh, from Public Service Commission, which helped me prepare for this. Uh, and they talked about uh, the Theory U methodology that's been used by the Scottish Government, which um, they've created 100 units or 100 centres around Scotland, which really, because it recognises that people actually need to change from within and change themselves to help create change externally. And if we look at teachers like Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama, you know, these people have been saying that for 50 years. So um, it's true, we have to change from within so that we can change without too. So it comes from, you know, right up there as macro and micro. I guess to me, building on Belinda's comment about wicked problems being deficit, it's what makes us human. It's what it's all about the human experience. And just to give it some uh, context, I've been uh, rereading uh, Aldous Huxley's uh, Brave New World, 
And I was just thinking about this notion of the the, the ideal world, the extent to which we've we, we, we're moving towards that. But actually, uh, to be fundamentally human is to a recognise uh, wicked problems and to work together to tackle them. And that's what makes it. And this notion of uh, we never actually solving problems is that's problems is what that's why we get up in the morning. It's just if we're solving the same ones over and over again, yeah, that's the problem. So I think it's actually great we're even thinking about okay, there are these things called wicked problems and they're cast that way and we've got to lift our game around that and that's going to be that's work what's well worth doing so try to take a kind of positive view uh, as being something that's what we're all about thanks very much i think there's some great insights there just this week on impact boom we released an article with kathleen kelly janice who's a stanford lecturer and recent author as well and what she said was that we've been putting band-aids on problems for decades and that those band-aids are doing nothing to solve the underlying wounds that are causing the problems in the first place. She said that the movement of social entrepreneurship, which is really, in her words, just applying innovation to non-profit ideas and social change, is not just about giving a man a fish or even teaching a man to fish. It's about revolutionising the fishing industry and shifting the paradigms that are causing injustice in the first place. So the question's for Helen, and that is, how might we then shift paradigms? And I think we've touched on this just now, but how may we shift these paradigms? How, how may we work more collaboratively and tackle the root cause of issues? Thanks for the warm-up. Um, there's a few things that I was planning on saying that you've all touched on. So 100% agree with um, recognising the strengths of community. So what we really encourage and design processes for is to understand from a whole system perspective, um, and again, I'm only talking from government, um, how government can actually work with service providers, work across government and also work with community in different ways. So if we're really going to shift this, how is it that instead of ending up with the rain, meteor rain of services coming down, how do we consider a whole of system perspective? How do we go from us and them to, as I was talking to Christine Crane, who's been doing some work on social benefit bonds, and her term is team government. So how do we stop considering a problem as we've got an increase in youth crime, so that's a, a crime issue, it's a police issue, it's a youth justice issue. How do we actually understand that if we really look at, you know, the journey of the people who are or the young people who are committing crimes, it's it's an education issue, it's a housing issue, it's a mental health issue, it's a so how do we pull all of those people together to work collaboratively and to understand from a whole of system perspective the role that they play and how they can do it differently and how they can reach out and work with service providers differently and work with the community differently. Um, and for government that involves to a reasonable extent um, considering the power position that we play if you know how is it that even in engaging the community you know from we hold power that we don't even recognize that we hold how is it that we can consider the different perspectives I think I talked about that before that you know that will make us uncomfortable so we get the diversity and understanding of the complexity and all of this, if we can actually look at a whole-of-system perspective and consider all of what different people bring and the strengths that people bring and build the capability and capacity to actually implement policy better. Brad, I'd like to just quickly ask you a question here about governance. So when working, we've been talking about this, these cross-sectoral initiatives that have many, many different stakeholders. 
How might governance best be approached to ensure that leadership can be sustained in the medium to long term? Thanks for posing the, 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 the juiciest question of all. And it does echo what you're saying, Helen, in terms of the notions of power. And uh, I think there's a lot of focus that we put into organising. There's a lot of focus in terms of models and frameworks, etc. But still, the, the, real, the real difference is how they're brought to life and how they're enacted. What's different about uh, leadership practices, but in particular, my experiences really encouraged me to think about the governance that supports that. And the role of governance is to sort of create the, the, the frameworks to take that long-term view, to provide a kind of stewardship uh, area. Because let's face it, in the community services sector, the public services sector, the, the road is you know paved with so many good intentions. And there's an awful lot of individual burnout, those that were focused, it's there, you know, in individual leaders working together. But so what I see is great initiatives, great accountability, and then very much focus on one or a small group. What's really vital, particularly this focus on cross-sectoral, is how do we build the kind of governance that not only is sort of representative, but actually is generative. That actually we're, we're government, we're business, we're indigenous, we're NGOs actually aren't there just to represent or ensure their interests, but actually to focus on the problem. And I think the critical focus, and I've met a number of people who are here, and certainly I think it's the QSOS group that held a place-based uh, forum earlier this week, to see that here in Brisbane, and uh, particularly southeast Queensland, we're hitting upon this notion of place as being a core anchor for, around which you can build governance. And certainly in my experience uh, with the Akina Foundation, and uh, if I could just give a quick plug to Alex Hallant. Alex, he's not going to thank me for this, but Alex... Uh, is visiting from uh, New Zealand, he's working with Griffith with the Eunice Centre, was chief executive of the Akina Foundation and helped to build an ecosystem around social enterprise here. The thing that really taught me in, in, in the governance work that we did were, is how that has to work hand in hand. And it's not just about governance, you know, controlling, looking backwards, making sure there's no mistakes, etc., but actually taking seriously its role in looking ahead, so creating a sense of leadership in governance. So one of the problems I see is you get the governance conversations, you get the leadership conversations, you get the management conversations, they've got to come together. And the long-term focus is the critical thing and, and sustaining so it's not, it's, if you like, it's, ind it's individual proof, it's people proof, it's about the cause, it's about the place. And we've got to get smarter about those forms of governance, and in particular the role that government plays uh, in that, because I think that's you know, this notion of avoiding conflict, risk, etc. You've you got to take risk on in, in, in governance, but you've got to do it in a very smart and measured way. So, so that I'd say that's probably our biggest challenge. It's less of a leadership, more of a governance challenge. And we've got to get much more concrete and real about that and not and away from the frameworks. What I'd also add to that is we've collectively learnt a lot. How do we share that? When you're talking about stewardship, how do we actually share the learnings that we all have so that we don't repeat mistakes of the past? We do all learn from each other. So if we're talking governance, you know, how do we bring in those learning loops as well? When speaking to Emma-Kate Rose of Food Connect Foundation... She told us that every geographical space is unique to itself and requires different types of responses. So the question for the panel is, how might we best scale place-based solutions when they've been designed to respond to local issues? And why haven't more social innovations and social enterprises scaled? 
Who'd like to take it? Well, I can talk about uh, the, the scaling of social enterprises, but on the place-based scale thing, just very quickly, I was speaking to um, Alex yesterday, and he was saying that, you know, actually you can scale the methodology so you can take that to wherever and then let the local people do what they want to do, which is pure old-fashioned community development, with, but with a new twist, you know, um, co-design, etc., etc. And another quick comment on that is, is around outcomes, actually, is, um, you know, we've become so outcomes obsessed that we've forgotten, I think, some process work. And I understand, obviously, that co-design is process work, but, if again, if you look back sort of 20 years or more to when community development had a very strong ethos, especially in Queensland, we saw amazing process work but outcomes weren't measured, and outcomes might um, take 10 years to realise in CD work. So it's, it's as we know, it's difficult to measure. Uh, scaling social enterprises, one of, I think one of the issues is, a big issue for me is, do we need to scale? You know, that's the question. Why, why should we scale? You know, like, I went for lunch yesterday at Crib Street Social in, Min in Milton. Like, it's a little restaurant bar, you know, like, why would, that, why would we ask that to scale? You know, small business drives the economy, so why are we expecting social enterprises to scale all the time? I think that that narrative has often come from very well-intentioned and very intelligent and caring people, but they come from the corporate sector often, and they kind of use that methodology or that lens to put over social enterprise, and it doesn't work, in my opinion, you know, if we think about places like the Nunda Co-op, amazing place-based small social enterprises create incredible outcomes, seed at Sandbag, there's, there's lots of different examples. Having said all that, we are definitely looking at scaling the uh, painting social enterprise. So for all the government buyers out there, come and see me and I'll give you a card. But, but the issue is often it's around that market opportunity and then the um, financial or the investment piece that come together at the same time. It's about a little bit of magic to make that into a reality. So if there's a potential for, I'm making figures up, a $10 million contract um, in painting across southeast Queensland, you know, where does that opportunity come from for us to meet that opportunity? And then how do we get the investment to meet that opportunity? That's at the larger end. And then at the smaller end, there's still the issue around um, microfinancing and start-up funds and enough incubators and accelerators to assist people on that start-up journey. And I know that Tom's addressing some of that in Brisbane with his Elevate program, but, um, you know, that is... Uh, you were swamped, to understand, with, um, with applications. You know, the, the, you know, the need is out there, but we need... To, again, it's, it's creating the opportunity from the bottom and from the top just touched a whole heap of my buttons there. <laughs> I think that the that to take your last um, comments first, the lack of um, appropriately structured uh, investment capital for entrepreneurs oriented to social outcomes is a, quite frankly a travesty in this country. I cannot still understand, having spent 10 odd years in that space, why in every other developed context and many, many developing countries in the world they've cracked that nut and we sit here still uh, somehow on some level thinking of ourselves uh, special. So to my second comments, the only 
way I've been able to kind of rationalise that in my mind is that uh, we are in this country addicted to charitable models and that actually if you look back across the history of community service organisations, I mean way back, what you see are social entrepreneurs establishing organisations, um, raising money through their communities in order to meet community need and that spirit has been colonised by the welfare state and so diminished over time. So now we have a whole range of organisations that see themselves in a charitable welfare mindset and a whole bunch of social entrepreneurs knocking on the outside of that going, um, we're different and what makes them different is the entrepreneurial mindset, not necessarily that they're trying to solve special problems, but now, you know, all of that kind of um, investment uh, towards solving those problems is all tangled up in this, you know, welfare state-designed um, system. And so, you know, I think it gets back to the paradigm change question. Uh, if we believe that we're either in model drift or model crisis in human services, then we must... Um, really kind of revisit and embrace this idea of entrepreneurship in a social context and, uh, you know, yeah, uh, mobilise this extraordinary resource currently in the system and that sits outside the system in the capital markets um, to those ends. And we're not special. It's been done elsewhere. Mm. <laughs> Thanks. Um, harking back to another old kind of piece of literature... I was rereading um, Schumacher's Small is Beautiful for people that might... Does anybody know that book? Which is seen as, you know, quite a left-wing um, economic book. But really interestingly, everybody should read it, by the way, because it has an amazing chapter on Buddhist economics and then it has a chapter on that old-fashioned word socialism, which is... And, and, and it stands up, so the book still stands up. But my point is that that he talks about in large firms, and he's writing this in the early 70s, I think it's 73, he talks about in large firms the need to have semi-autonomous business units that can release entrepreneurial flair and innovation. Um, and that was from a left-wing economist, but that's exactly what we need in large non-profits, because I know that in many large non-profits, they start social enterprises, they pump money into them from a charitable mindset, and what they do is they treat them as programs of the non-profit. They don't treat them as a business. So if we look back to Schumacher and say, why can't we create semi-autonomous business units within non-profits, but also within government, within large corporates? Why can't Lendlease or Hutchinson's have social enterprises embedded in them, run by social entrepreneurs? I think that that would be you know, a long way to solve some of those problems that we've been talking about today. I'll be very brief, if that's possible for a professor. Um, <laughs> and the focus has been around producers, entrepreneurs and capital. The real shift needs to take place in, consume, in consumption, consumers, because if you do look at a lot of you know, paradigm shifts, it actually becomes consumer-driven. And I suppose, uh, I know sitting on the board of Arkina, we used to talk about risks, and I'd say my biggest risk is that I worry about is that social enterprise, you know, in a year's time, people say, well, we tried that. And it's sort of one, way to, one sure way to empty the room is talk about social enterprise because, you know. But actually the oh, point yeah. is, yeah, I'm, well, you, you and a couple of others, but it, it's too critical not to be a fashion. The, the, the thing that's really, I suppose, that I used to think about is if social enterprise, social innovation become mainstream, in other words, that's just the way, mainstream and main street, it's just the way. And I think you meant you, the, 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 the cue was in your 
experience you're talking about as a consumer, if we get a big shift in terms of people saying insisting that this you know has to be produced uh, via a social enterprise, social innovation, so that it becomes very hard not to purchase a service or a product or a good unless it has a strong social enterprise focus, then we've succeeded. To the point where if you do social enterprise and, and the room is empty, that's terrific. The job has been done. So I do think we haven't focused enough on shifting the consumer and building scale that focuses on place-based products and services, but actually becomes a major movement. I suppose that's the, that's going to be the critical shift that I that I'd want to see, and not only in terms of uh, private services, but also public. Thank you very much for those insights, all of you. I'd like to open the questions to the floor now. I'll stand up so I can see all of you. If you have any questions, please, this is your opportunity. I think what we'll do is we'll just repeat the question back in the microphone so we can capture it. But were there any questions from any of you? Sabrina. Hi, I'm Sabrina from Brisbane Pool Library. I think we were from the start in conversation to consumption, etc. And I wanted to know if in your environment, you know, we have a lot of community issues. But our GDP is growing, so we are achieving economic success. So are we modeling new economic systems and how we can redefine that? And I saw now that the Premier, the Prime Minister of New Zealand is also trying to find other indexes that actually measure well-being. I would like to see if in your um, sectors you're actually, you know, we spoke about outcomes at the beginning, but the final outcome that our political system, economic system is aiming to is growth GDP. So are you discussing this in your businesses and especially probably in the in government? Because I feel talking about GDP still like talking about the religion, we can't really, you know, provide <laughs> that. <laughs> So the question being around GDP, is it something that's all that is being spoken of and, and how do you relate to that? Uh, well, jobs is very much a Queensland government platform um, or it was part of the election platform. So the GDP economic focus is front and centre kind of in an isolated way but also in a connection to social outcomes way. So there is a strong focus, particularly a shift um, from an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's perspective towards helping people to participate in the economy. So, and yes, that has a jobs outcome, but it also is from the perspective of how do we encourage people to participate, I guess, in society in a meaningful way and a way that might give them purpose while respecting that there are a whole range of social things, issues that will prevent that. So while the outcome might be jobs, it actually helps focus on what are the things that are preventing people from being able to participate in that way. So, and that is certainly a focus of government. Well, I think that maybe I, I missed the fact that aiming to GDP, with GDP, there are a lot of social and environmental externalities. So yes. this is the discussion, if we keep, you know, focusing on the solution, but we keep creating I've been in a lot of United Nations events and they say, oh, we are saving all these children, etc., etc. But with globalization, we are even creating more poverty. So, you know, I think it's always an influx of charity help, but we're still creating. Yeah. So I think focusing on GDP keeps creating those externalities. Um, it's a fantastic question and it sort of it gets to um, the sort of challenge we have to grapple with in terms of bending our minds, doesn't it? So, you know, I mean, I'm sound most woken up on Thursday morning as a radical, but you know, you could conceive of charity and welfare as a response or a, you know, yeah, a band aid, you know, to the kind of negative outcomes of a trickle down economic 
agenda. And so one of the things that, and I know this is a conversation happening in Griffith University as well, um, that we've been starting to talk about, uh, you know, and this is um, not new for many people in the room, but this idea of inclusive growth rather than trickle-down uh, economics. And I think in my context, I, the best example I can give right now of where there is a conversation going on around that that is focused on people rather than the system is in the implementation of the National Disability Insurance Scheme, where though there is negative publicity around that scheme's implementation, at its core it is about inclusive growth. It's about people with disabilities uh, finding their way to social and economic inclusion by their own choice, by their own control. So, uh, you know, I think, again, that's a bright spot and a place where, you know, we should focus. And I think your challenge to us is actually to raise the debate a little bit around not just the social um, but the economic. But then, you know, if I'm hearing it right, what are, what are the things that will help us know we've been successful beyond just the economic indicators? And, yeah, I think it's a great challenge. Thank you for the question. We have another question just here. Would you like to speak directly into the microphone? Um, last year, a young Dutch guy called Rutger Bregman released a book called Utopia for Realists. Um, it's a very popular book. One of his contentions was that the cause of poverty is that people don't have enough money and that we should just give them more money and then they won't be poor anymore. I've worked in human services policy for 10 years and obviously I feel like things are a little bit more complex than that, but I'm really interested in the panel's views. That, that was about the universal basic income, though, wasn't it? So, yeah, well, I know of it. I'm all for it. <laughs> I mean, why not? I mean, it's not just a case of just giving people more dull money. You know, there's an actual theory that underpins it, and there's we know that there's um, individual states that have tried it, and, you know, um, going back to, again, I think the, the 80s in America are talking about trying it, and it was only kind of like an impasse in the Senate that, that blocked it. So give it a try. They're trialling it in Finland, so I think that, yeah. So it'll, it's small amounts, but it's a, it's a starting point. And I think, like everything, um, and often in government, people are like, so where has it been tried? Where has it been successful before? And if if we don't have to go through the pain of learning all the lessons and we can learn from someone else, then, you know, you're further up in the, I guess, chain of, of getting something started and tried. Yeah, I guess the way to cast it is not so much a social innovation, it's an economic social innovation and it should be driven by the previous question about what gets measured gets done and I suppose, so So yeah, I mean I, I think it's, it's creating enough of a social political movement around that to demand that kind of response. Now how do we, get, how do we go about doing that? I guess that's the critical thing, but yeah. So there's another question from the audience. Uh, my name's Ben Cameron. University, and I'm wondering if there's an impact boom policy that you would like to advocate that we can all rally behind. So we have the classical liberals on one side of the coin that advocate that uh, we've got uh, uh, we need to encourage freedom of choice where there's too much redistribution, where we outsource the ethic of care to the government, and so therefore, as a body politic and as a public, you know, we don't want the government sort of handles that um, becomes a charity model. And uh, so I'm just wondering if there's some sort of policy, such as a triple bottom line, which can result in that top-down, bottom-up effect, that uh, maybe some sort of universal policy that you might argue for that can encourage corporations to do good and not be just economic agents in this universe, but to also be social agents as well for the greater good. So 
Who'd like to address that? Let's go to the professor. <laughs> when the chips are down, go to the professor. <laughs> well, I mean, who are we as panellists to, de to de determine that? But let's face it, in this room, if we did actually sit down, and I love this, the link between impact and boom, if we were to say, you know, uh, there's going to be a boom in impact and we're going to be responsible, what might that be? We've heard several suggestions already, and I guess... From the perspective of someone that is about to leave uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, I've spent uh, 18 wonderful years there, love the place to beats. Um, and it, just as things are starting to get themselves sorted, I'm coming here. But I am incredibly heartened by the energy and the passion. Met a number of you during the break, was here for two months on sabbatical. There's actually, uh, we've got a, a requisite variety. We've got a quorum here of people who are committed, but how do we harness it? And how do, you know, maybe we need to think about what our focus is going to be as a community that's committed to social enterprise and social innovation. So, um, you know, classic professor dodging the bullet like that. But, but I, do, I mean, you know, let's face it. You know, if we just said, what are the one or two things that we need to see and it needs to be done, you know, right now, uh, what might that be? That might be the thing that we could use to kind of harness, as you said, a lot of great minds here and a lot of great experiences. So, uh, so yeah, I'm up for it. Give me three weeks, though. <laughs> well, at the danger of sounding like a complete hippie, I would go back to individuals and promote mindfulness and meditation throughout society so that we can change and again going back to to quote Thich Nhat Hanh and people like that they talk about um, change comes from heart to heart so even in the middle of war and crisis we can still change society from an individual level and when we work with other people on a heart to heart basis it works so that's my policy mindfulness and meditation. My policy would actually be to promote conversations. So every time we have a conversation, every time we um, explore, seek further understanding, we're actually changing the system. So whether we throw something out there that encourages more conversations so we do start to change the system, then, you know, it sounds simple, but I think it would possibly be effective. May as well have a crack too now. See what I did? I managed to pass it off to the <laughs> professor and then down the line so I got a chance to think about it. I mean, I, I don't know if this is a policy so much, but, I mean, uh, I reflect on the sort of uh, question that was raised around um, the corporate world and money and, uh, you know, having spent 10 years in the impact investment space, I still have this deep interest in money and the flow of money and what it does and doesn't do well in our world. And so my policy thing would be, you know, if if every time someone had a dollar in their hand, they just thought about what it was going to do both economically and socially as it kind of went out there in the market, um, that, you know, if if that thinking then kind of you know, found itself sort of up at the systems level, then, you know, money is so powerful, you know, we can do anything with it. So, yeah. That'd be my policy of such. So the question is, how might we create the impact boom, right? There's a lot of talk, and, you know, from a few years ago from federal government talking about the ideas boom, and that's really what stoked this project of impact boom one because I thought ideas are cheap. You know, we can all have ideas, but how do we actually do something that has value with those ideas? I think there's, there was too much focus on the ideas. We need more focus on the impact. I must certainly look forward to, to welcoming you back at our future events. Our next event is on May 31st at Brisbane Powerhouse, and that will be another night of networking and also celebration of the, the Elevate program, the, the final 
part of that program will see eight of the 16 social enterprises who will be working with pitching their ideas, but also be an opportunity for you to, to once again continue this conversation and keep it moving forward. So please, lock away May 31st. And on that note, I'd very much like to thank all of you for coming along today. I very much appreciate it. And uh, please tune into the podcast, listen to the articles that are coming in weekly from around the world, from people uh, like these, these great panel members who have a lot of great insights and resources and books and, uh, and other interesting things to share. So thanks again. Appreciate it. And I think we need an extra round of applause, please, for this panel. That would be amazing. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people, and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below. And remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page, and Twitter.